And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today's the feast day of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein, as we commonly uh, recognize her. She hardly uh, seemed Catholic saint material. Um, she was a, a Jewish child. Uh, when she became a teenager, she rejected God. Um, she liked, she was a great thinker. Um, and in fact, as she matured, she her brilliance showed up in the nineteen in her twenties. Excuse me, in her twenties, she uh, was attracted to the philosophy of Edmund Husserl, the father of the philosophical school, uh, often called phenomenology. It, it seeks to explain the connection between the the visible world and the world of ideas and values. Um, she Husserl was responsible for uh, one of the main thrusts of twentieth century. Philosophy. Uh, his student Martin Heidegger became one of the uh, two or three great existential philosophers. Another student of his, Max Scheler, was a doctoral thesis subject of uh, Carol Wojtyla's, uh, you know, doctoral dissertation. She was, in fact, so competent in this area of philosophy that she studied with Husserl and was his assistant, preparing his papers for publication. So how? What is the connection between her philosophy and her spirituality? How does it contribute to her understanding of what it means to be a saint? Well, joining me to help us understand this is Dr. Donald Wallenfang. He's a secular discalced Carmelite, professor of theology and philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He's the author of Human and Divine Being, a study on the Theological Anthropology of Edith Stein, and many other books as well. And Dr. Wallenfang, good to have you here. Thanks. Great to be with you, Al. A pure gift to be with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, I'm looking forward to this. I, this Edith Stein is one of those women, I, every time I think on her, I realize how little I actually know uh, of her. So I'm hoping you will help me understand her better. Uh, let's go over some... Just little facts of her life. Was she? I know she was raised in a Jewish home. Did she embrace Judaism? Was she ever personally observant? Yes, she was as a child. Uh, up and through about the age thirteen, uh, she did observe the Jewish holidays, feast days, uh, way of life. And in fact, she was born on the Jewish Day of Atonement, October twelfth. 1891, and she said that was her favorite feast day in which the family would fast for 24 hours, mm-hmm. and uh, she loved the penitential practice of of the the high solemnity of the Day of Atonement. But then when she was 13 years old, she began to lose her faith in God and uh, drifted off into what we could call an atheistic slumber mm-hmm. through her, the rest of her teenage years into her 20s, until later on she would encounter a cross of Christ, uh, Carmelite spirituality with St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography, and then eventually convert to the Catholic faith at the age of 30. Did she have years um, between her atheism and her being received into the Church in which she practiced some form of uh, Christianity other than uh, Catholicism? No, Catholicism was eventually 
uh, the way she went, although she was influenced by Protestant friends. As you mentioned, uh, Professor Edmund Husserl, her philosophical mentor, himself was a convert from Judaism to Lutheran Christianity. Mm. And another good family friend, Adolf and Anna Reinach, were also, I believe, Lutheran Christians. So she was influenced by Protestant Christianity, but above all, by Catholicism. When she read uh, the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila, it's it's like she had some kind of epiphany. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's an amazing story. She was staying for some weeks with her her friends, the Conrads, uh, and another woman she had studied philosophy with, Edmund Husserl, Hedwig, Conrad Martius, and she was living uh, in their home for a few weeks, and they had an extensive library, as well as an extensive garden. They loved uh, to cultivate fruit and whatnot. But over the course of an evening, when uh, her hosts were even out of town, she pulled off this book off the shelf, and it was The Life of St. Teresa of Avila, her autobiography. And she read and read and read throughout the night, and eventually closed the book and said, this is the truth. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, and it was that, as well as so many other moments on her way of conversion. Even her friend Hedrick Conan Martius had asked her once to tell her about her conversion to the Catholic faith, and uh, quoting a Latin translation of uh, a verse, I think, from the book of the prophet Isaiah. She said, Secretu meo mihi, my secret for myself. Uh, so Edith had a very uh, vibrant interior life mm-hmm. and resonated so much with Carmelite spirituality, uh, which spurred on her conversion uh, and eventual full initiation into the Catholic Church. There's some story, and you can clarify this, that she didn't talk about her conversion for a while for fear of her mother. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, her her mother, uh, Frau Augusta Stein, uh, she was very um, had a lot of reservations about talking with her, her mother about her conversion to Catholicism because her mother was a devout uh, Jewish woman, mm-hmm. and it was uh, hard enough for her to see her daughter kind of drift from the Jewish faith uh, through her young adulthood, but then to hear the news that she was becoming Catholic was very difficult uh, for Frau Stein, and, and Edith said, looking back, it was one of the few times she saw her mother move to tears and cried. So it was a really difficult thing between Edith and her mother, although Edith did continue to go to various Jewish um, holidays in the synagogue and and things, even when she was Catholic. And sometimes she would even bring her Catholic breviary in with her and pray the same psalms, which we share to this day, uh, in Judaism and Catholicism. Very good. So she didn't see any radical discontinuity between uh, her Judaism and her uh, Catholicism. That's right. I think her conversion to Catholicism, in so many ways, put her in deeper touch with her Jewish roots and saw a perfect coherence of meaning and continuity between the two traditions of faith, Christianity, of course, which is a reform movement out of Judaism. That's right. uh, Before it welcomes in the, the Gentiles. Does how, how long 
before the rise, get a little bit of the dates here. She's born in 1891, mm-hmm. and she's baptized in 1922. So mm-hmm. roughly 10 years before Hitler attains power uh, mm-hmm. in Germany. I think he becomes chancellor in 22 or 20, in 32 or 33. Um, mm-hmm. Is she aware of the, the threat of Nazism from the beginning? I think so. She does give some indications, and we have letters to her friends. Um, and even the book she wrote, her own autobiography called Life in a Jewish Family, was written for the purpose to show non-Jewish people that Jewish people are human too. Yeah. Uh, and, and so she's, she's undergoing a deep apologetic against this Nazi ideology. Uh, on one hand, she shared this German spirit, this thick and rich uh, German spirit of, of understanding himself as a member of, of the people. But she could see, even early on, where things are going in a, in a bad direction. Uh, and she spoke out against this and continued to be a witness to the totality of the mystery and dignity of the human person, no matter what ethnicity race, culture, and so on. Mm. Was, she, uh, was she blocked from teaching uh, because she was Jewish? In part. It was more because well, after she received her doctorate in philosophy uh, under the tutelage of Edmund Husserl, who did recommend her for a university professorship, she was mainly black because she was a woman, yeah. and she was one of the first women to receive a doctorate in philosophy uh, in Europe in the 20th century. Uh, so she, there was discrimination against her because she was uh, a woman, and then a gradual growing discrimination because she was Jewish. Yeah. So in the meantime, she taught at a Dominican girls' school in Speyer, for eight years, and then for a year or so, uh, was an instructor in the German Institute for Scientific Pedagogy in Munster. And and, and at that point, uh, in 1933, that job came to an abrupt halt uh, because of the rise of the Nazi ideology and the persecution of the Jewish people. And in 1933, October 14th, she enters the Carmelite uh, convent in Cologne, Germany. Okay. Um, And how long is she there before she is uh, rounded up? Nine years. Uh, She'd be rounded up in 1942. And so we celebrate her memory on this date, August 9th, the the date of her her execution Mm. in Auschwitz in a, a poisonous gas chamber, along with her sister Rosa, Rosa, who was uh, like a third-order Carmelite, living with Edith. Uh, they were transferred to the Carmelite convent in Echt, uh in the Netherlands to try to protect them uh, from deportation to the concentration camp. But then the Dutch Catholic bishops, uh, one week in homilies, they all spoke out against what the Nazis were doing. And as a reprisal, the Nazis rounded up all Catholics of Jewish ethnicity, and Edith and her sister Rosa were among them, and then deported to Auschwitz. So she was a Carmelite for uh, nine years before her untimely death. Mm. Um, Did she... We're just coming up to a break here. Uh, On the other side of the break, though, what I'd like to 
talk about is how her how her work in philosophy was integrated into her understanding of God and man. And, um, you know, she practiced a form of philosophy that is not well known by many of us. But I'm, I'm curious, she, she seemed to be a woman who had her faith and her reason thoroughly integrated. So on the other side of the break, I'd like to start addressing those questions. My guest is Dr. Donald Wallenfang at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. We're looking at the life, spirituality, and thinking of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein. First Chronicle. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Looking at the life and spirituality and the thought of Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, my guest is Dr. Donald Wallenfang. He's a professor of theology and philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. I wanted to uh, move over into the area of the integration of faith and reason. And uh, I, in, an, in a lecture that you gave, um, you made a statement which I I thought was interesting and maybe a good place to go uh, to start out here, and that is that um, the question of vocation cannot be sought merely through self-examination plus a scrutiny of the various possibilities. One must pray for the answer, and in many cases it must be sought by way of obedience. Is that a good place to begin? <laughs> Beautiful place to begin. Okay. So let's talk about how she understood this idea of vocation. Oh, it's such an incredible concept we have in theology from the Latin root vocare, to call. And it is God who calls the created soul to do God the Father's will. And we hear the voice of God, as you mentioned, through both faith and reason. Pope St. John Paul II wrote this wonderful encyclical, published in 1998, the same year he canonized St. Edith Stein. Mm -hmm. It's called Fides et Ratio, on the relationship between faith and reason. And I can't help but read just this opening line where he writes that faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. And that has to do with their vocation about God. So to know one's personal vocation, we have to seek the truth about God and how he calls us. When she... Would, would seeking the truth about God, in what sense would she have understood um, this idea of hearing his voice? Mm -hmm. Going back to Judaism, the central prayer of the Jewish people called the Shema, which is the Jewish word that means hear or listen. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, mm -hmm. verse 4, in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And it's this Shema that Jesus extends 
as the eternal word of the Father, a God who is revealed as the word who also listens to the cry of his people. Going back to the theophany of God with Moses and the burning bush, and God says to Moses, I have I've heard the cry of my people in their suffering. So the Shema, to listen, to find the truth, it begins with listening for the voice of truth. And, and like St. Edith, we've come to believe that this truth is living, alive, personal, with face and name, and we call him Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh. And so then the, in the response uh, to that call or that listening uh, to that call would be uh, obedience. Is, is that, and, and that itself helps to shape your next phase of growth, I guess. Exactly. The same with the, the word obedience, the root in Latin, audire, again, like the Hebrew Shema, to hear or listen to, hmm. ab audire, obedience. Uh, and so following the will of God begins with listening for the voice of God, and God speaks to us in all kinds of ways. I love the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola on this, uh, what he calls making an election and all the different ways we hear the voice of God, especially through Scripture and liturgy and all the teachings of the Church. There's so many things, probably over 90% of our, our daily lives, we know what the will of God is because of the teachings of the Church. Mm-hmm. But as you quoted St. Edith about the question of what is God calling me to do, what is my personal vocation, as she says, it must be sought through obedience. And listening to the voice of God takes time to become silent, to quiet and still the soul. And this is what she learned especially from Carmelite spirituality. We hear the voice of God best in silence. Yes, yes. So... uh hears the voice of God best in silence, then what does the relationship between that personal encounter with the Word, or the call, and the community uh, of which one is a part, does the, uh, does the community play any role in uh, hearing uh, the Word of God? Oh, most definitely. There's there's a real fundamental dialectic between the individual and the community. So to be nestled within the community of the Church, we can, we learn to know who we are in this mystical body of Christ that mm-hmm. St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that Christ is a body. He is the head, we are the members, and we are one body in Christ, and it is so being enveloped in the mystical body of Christ, that each one of us comes to know who we are, our true identity as a son or daughter of God the Father. Yeah, this is, I think, so important. Uh, the um, Before I returned to the Catholic uh, Church, uh, I was very much involved in various forms of evangelical Protestantism, and the emphasis, at least in the group that I was a part of, the emphasis was pretty much, um, you know, you get saved, uh, you read the scriptures, uh, you try to discern God's will for your life. But we we did not have a very sophisticated understanding of the role that the church actually played and uh, helping us to discern 
the, our future. Uh, it's, it seems to me that Catholicism, the, the communal dimension of the call is, is very important. I mean, that's, that's where we can confirm, it seems to me, uh, what spiritual gifts we may have received. I mean, uh, we don't just make a list, uh, you know, and say, I think I have this talent or this gift. or what. Those things have to be tested within the context of the community, right? Exactly. As we read in the letters to the Hebrews that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and this church, this pilgrim church on earth, uh, the suffering church and purgatory and the triumphant church in heaven, this communion of angels and saints in which Edith Stein says all of us are destined uh, by God who are, who are faithful to the call of God's voice, destined to be inserted as these individual unique flowers within eternally imperishable wreaths. This is a kind of concrete metaphor she gives for talking about the communion of angels and saints and mm. communion with the Most Holy Trinity in heaven. She she must have known when she was rounded up with her sister and others uh, that death was imminent. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if we have anything that she's written after she was rounded up, but do we know from prior writings, how she looked at death uh, and how that how that fit in her understanding of life. Um, obviously, you know, it's, it certainly has some relationship to the cross, but I'm wondering if she's, and given the fact that she loved the Feast of Atonement <laughs> when she was a, yeah. a girl, uh, she sounds like someone who'd given a lot of thought to death. Yeah, it's very interesting. One thing we have uh, witnessed, a witness heard her say to her sister Rosa when they were put on the train to head for Auschwitz, she said, let us go for our people. And she she understood what was happening, this great traumatic tragedy of what was happening in this, this Holocaust where six million Jewish men, women, and children were murdered. Six million, her and her sister among them. But she said, let us go for our people. So she remained in solidarity with her Jewish people, but took on this new identity in Christ and her Catholic faith. And so one thing she said was that she thought that those who came to understand the cross of Christ should take it up on behalf of those who have not yet come to understand its saving power. And so she talks about standing proxy for sinners, and this is a real Carmelite uh, motif, a real central part of the Carmelite vocation and apostolate spirituality, to stand proxy for sinners, to stand as a substitute, to stand in the gap for people who are still lacking in this full encounter with the cross of Christ. One of her favorite sayings in Latin, Ave Crux Spes Unica, Hail cross, our only hope. And that's a message I think St. Edith really brings to all of us today, a message of hope. Her name itself, Edith, means prosperous in the strife. And with determined determination, as St. Teresa of Avila puts it, she went to her death 
thinking about St. Paul, what he writes in Colossians, that we make up in our bodies, in our own sufferings, what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. So this mystical way of vicarious uh, representative atonement on behalf of other people to draw them closer to Christ. So so does death become, for her, um, I mean, f- before one can enter into the fullness of life, does death become the moment of self-emptying? Yeah, the ultimate moment of, of self-emptying, yeah. as we read in St. Paul in Philippians chapter 2, uh, have um, the same attitude that is in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be robbed, but rather emptied himself, that Greek verb, kenao, kenosis, to empty himself, becoming a servant, uh, all the way to death, death on a cross. So for Edith, her death was a definitive statement of faith. It was the way that those theological virtues of faith, hope, and love could realize their final destiny, and fullness in the kingdom of God. It was a hope that needed, we could say, the launching pad of death to be risen to new life yeah. and to become this great intercessor uh, for the whole church to this day. Does the vulnerable, this vulnerability, as one approaches death, knowing that this is cannot be avoided? Does it help to accept uh, this encroaching annihilation, so to speak? Does it help to stand then, as you were referring earlier, to stand in place? In other words, to see one's death on behalf of uh, others uh, in the Church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the idea. I think a real concept in Judaism, one of my favorite other philosophers, Emmanuel Levinas, okay, yeah. Jewish philosopher, yeah. and one of uh, Pope John Paul II's favorite thinkers, too, um, that Levinas talks about this forgetfulness of one's own death because of such great solicitude for the death of the other person who faces me. And uh, there's a beautiful movie that was made on the life of St. Edith Stein called The Seventh Chamber. And Maya Morgenstern plays her character. It's an Italian. And uh, it shows Edith in Auschwitz caring for children, picking up the doll that went in the mud. And, and so, in a way, her death is not what's most decisive. Uh, she's forgetful of it because she's so concerned about other people around her. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with me today, uh, Dr. Wallenfang. And uh, we'll talk again in the near future, I hope. Thank you. A great pleasure, Al. So great to be with you.